There has never been a more important time to make a difference and create better lives. I'm Andrew Liveris, former Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Dow Chemical Company and the former Executive Chairman of Dow DuPont. In this podcast series, you will hear from one of our Liveris Academy scholars interviewing a leader they identified as being important to them. My name is Levin McGuckin, and today I have the opportunity to interview Andrew Liveris, former CEO of the Dow Chemical Company and donor to the University of Queensland, to discuss leadership through uncertain times. What do you feel is the biggest challenge that young leaders will have to face in the future? And do you have any advice on how we can rise to these challenges? Well, thank you for having me, Joanne. And I think that's a great question to lead off with and giving this some thought as I have during the era of COVID. I think if you could say COVID's done anything to all of us, it's accelerated some things and it's decelerated some other things. And I think the challenges of the future being given a complete new context, which is something that uh, young people, uh, I believe, are going to have to really think through and respond to. In the generation before you and you know my generation, if you like, I was pretty simple to, in hindsight, to go into business or academia or government. You could make a singular choice. I don't think that choice is available anymore. I think young people have to actually operate at the intersections of all the institutions that were built last century. Uh, All the institutions that are needed in this century are actually overlapping quite considerably in their missions and purposes. And the singular purpose that we're all now driving to is actually how to make it safer for humanity and equitable for humanity to live on the planet. And I think young people have no real role models in the past on how to get that done outside of being, I'm going to join a company, or I'm going to join government, or I'm going to join academia, or I'm going to join an NGO. Today, you actually have to have all of those stakeholders. You have to go firmly at the table that is multi-stakeholder, which means if you are a government person, you actually have to understand business. You have to understand academia. If you're a business person, you have to understand policy and government and NGOs and all that. So this purpose-driven model means we need a new class of leader in enterprises, and the enterprise is the entire ecosystem. It's not just your piece of the ecosystem. I encourage young people actually to do that by running for office. I think we need a new class of politician. I think our political leaders do not understand that and they're generationally thinking last century's issues. And the issues of the 21st century needs a complete reset by our political establishment. So that's one area that I'm really thinking we're bereft of young people and we need a lot more young people to enter politics. So my next question was, what experience led you to first become interested in taking leadership roles in your workplace? And how do you feel that these initial experiences shaped your leadership style? Yeah, I think I was fortunate in my early uh, life working for Dow Chemical, where I worked in a part of Dow that had no boundary conditions based on the paradigms of headquarters and the paradigms of the established markets. I was in Asia at a time frame when Asia was opening up big time. The young economies, the four tigers of Asia, the early stages of China, the early stages of India, Japan still, you know, uh, being a major force around the world in the in the Asian region. So the ways of doing business were ways that actually gave me experiences that. I didn't have to take the playbook or the manual from headquarters and just exercise what they tell you to do in Europe or in the US or in established markets like Australia. The playbook actually 
I helped write. I mean, I actually, it was my experiences dealing with governments in Beijing and governments in Thailand and all these places that were not democracies. And so you really realize that the rule books had to be written in the context of how they did business in that part of the world. And those experiences, you know, which I was a good student, I was inquisitive, I observed, I watched, and I learned from people around me that weren't your vanilla type business person or your vanilla type government leader. And and then it got me into the real aha moment, the experience that sort of said, you know what, no matter what you end up knowing or not knowing or doing or not doing, the one thing you, you better have in your repertoire is establishing trust-based relationships. And, you know, we can look someone in the eye and deliver honesty and trust. And that, that is multicultural. No culture has a hold on that. And most of that, especially in emerging countries, is based on friendships. And, you know, one thing Australians have is we're very hospitable and we're very friendly. And so having that, and especially also with my ethnic Greek background, I, I mean, I, friends and family was kind of the way I grew up in Darwin and, of course, in my Greek household. And so it made me have those experiences where I built relationships from a very young age that have held true through decades. So my next question is just surrounding information. What do you do to make sure that you're well-informed of what's going on in the world, especially in times when you've got so much media that can be consumed? I'm insatiable in my thrust and desire to really know what everyone else thinks in the moment, not just the history books, not just one newspaper or one TV channel. I'm also willing to do assignments where I know I don't have much time, but I create the time to be a contributor, uh, even though it takes reading, it takes prep, it takes being informed. So my schedule is multiple hours a day and nights still to this very day. And I try to glean from one place the things that are relevant to the other place. I mean, just today, I've been in three separate meetings, you know, one in in a sector that's got nothing to do with the second meeting than in another sector. And the third was an investment proposition in a startup that's got nothing to do with the other two. But in each of those meetings, I heard things that were relevant to each. So I could pick up from one and transmit it in the other by crossing over all the time. So I used to say that the best example of my roles and my current roles is if you think of an intersection where there's 15 or 20 roads coming to this one roundabout and you're the traffic cop in the middle and you're saying, no, go ahead, stop, watch out, you're going to have an accident, get over to that lane, move over here. And I'm constantly pivoting along those 15 or 20 roads to make sure nothing firstly negative happens, but more importantly, the outcome is positive. And I'm learning the movements of everyone so that I'm watching it all the time. So watch, monitor, learn, study, engage, leverage, have the best practice of what's current, not just by one mouthpiece, but the multiple mouthpieces out there. And so I think by, by, you know, that takes a lot of energy. I used to say in all of my Tao speeches, the three things that you need are passion, energy, and judgment. If you have passion and energy with experiences, you'll learn to make the right decisions. And experiences have to be bad and good to get to the point where you have the best judgment. And if you can keep working that, you can be engaged 
independent of the time available to you in a day. Next, I wanted to turn to the COVID pandemic and ask, how do you feel that this response has affected government's leadership and their ability to collaborate with each other on the global stage? Yeah, so the, the collaboration on the global stage, I think, is going to go in phases. The first phase, which is the reaction to the pandemic and leveraging best practices, I'd say we're very spotty on seeing who did a great job and who didn't do such a great job. There were also very um, big trade-offs to be made and government had to make top-down decisions. It's a health crisis, it's affecting people, it's killing people, so they had to move fast. And so the best practices and the best-in-class responses, we're living in a country that you know is in the top percentile of responses because it basically said, hey, we're going to put rules in place They're going to protect the lives of our people and we're going to stop the infection rates. We're going to put in contact tracing. We're going to do all those things that you're very familiar with. And I think that sort of response has proven to be very effective in phase one. Um, Now, the countries that didn't do phase one, they had the choices, like the UK as a great example of a democracy similar to ours that did not. Uh, Their trade was, I don't want to affect the economy. It's the famous quote, lives or livelihoods. And so those that protected the livelihoods through letting the economy still work and function like it was functioning before risked, in fact, infection rates going out of control. And certainly we have a great example of that in the United States and the UK and a few other countries. Now, the price of going 100% protection is, in fact, the economy. So phase two and what happens in phase two is actually mostly how is the economy going to recover from printing enormous amount of debt? Because the only way you protected jobs during a period when you've stopped the economy or close to it is to print money. So out there in our future is a big crisis, which is inflation and maybe a global financial crisis. So someone will have to pay the price for that. Governments need to collaborate on that like never before, like they did in the GFC. I don't think much of that work's being done right now. In other words, how to get global supply chains functioning again, how to get trade functioning again, how to get economies like tourism and all that functioning again. So that part, I think, is still not graded. We, we, we are not really testing any country's ability to coordinate an economic recovery on a global scale. Now, we have it in national level, but mostly through printing of money, and that's what we're going to see in the United States under President Biden. We're going to get massive amount of money from debt pumped into the economy to stop COVID uh, being transmitted, what they should have done the first time around, but on top of that, to keep jobs alive, like we've done in Australia, to actually keep the economy going, but all based off of debt. So that means the, the day of reckoning will come in the future for that increased debt. I wanted to ask, what do you feel will be permanently changed after the COVID pandemic? So this is post-vaccine being widely distributed and available. And so what won't return to our old normal? Interventions of the COVID kind, now that we've had it for about a year and we probably will have another year of it, is probably the best top-down intervention to look at all the things we were doing before that were absolutely, totally silly and addictive and actually, in hindsight, were not necessary, plus also prove out that ways of getting things done uh, can be done differently in the days of digital and online technology. So if 100 was the condition before COVID, Uh, on barometers like work and where we work 
travel and how we travel, reasons we travel like business travel, board meetings and how many of them have to be in person versus, you know, virtual seminars, same question, buying things in shopping malls versus online. We've accelerated our learning over this year to the point where the digital penetration in everything we do, work, live, play, buy, enjoy, has been accelerated by at least a decade, which means that if you'd envisaged in 2030 or 2035, that digital would have permeated and we would be in a lifestyle where humans basically are not having to go everywhere at all times to do their tasks. And they can use digital platforms to do those tasks, including domestic travel versus international travel. That year arrived in 2020. And I think by the time we come out of COVID, we would be in the 2030, 2035 timeframe in terms of doing things online that were previously done through physical presence. It'll have profound positive effects to some industries and profound negative effects in others. And of course, how to actually change travel, especially leisure-based travel, to something that was already happening but now is accelerated. It used to be before that travel would be, I want to go to Paris and I want to see the Eiffel Tower. Whereas really what travel was starting to become, I want to go to Paris. I might see the Eiffel Tower, but I want to get on a riverboat and live life for a week on the River Seine and experience what it's like to engage with organic produce and farms on the Seine River wineries and have that experience. So I think experience-based travel will replace mass travel. And I do think there's a result of that domestic tourism can take off because as I found out by being here for the year, there's a phenomenal amount of places in Australia that I've never been to that now I have. And so I think those profound effects uh, will be the new normal. And that certainly I can talk a lot longer on this, but I won't, will be massively affecting the workplace and how the workplace operates. Just wanted to follow up on this. With COVID being such a main ticket item for government. Do you feel that climate change and more responsible policy has been set to the side? Or do you think it's being progressed alongside COVID response plans? I think the sustainable agenda from the UN SDG, Sustainable Development Goals, when it was launched a couple of years back, was probably the domain of a very few places. It's fair to say that the centre of gravity of the SDGs and Paris Climate Accords were EU and EU-based countries, some nod to a Canada or New Zealand, uh, but pretty much the rest of the world was paying lip service and, and even the commitments out of Paris. Lots of places were finding ways to cheat and not fulfill their commitments. Remember, Paris doesn't obligate any country to do anything. So uh, I actually think that it wasn't really going to the point of accountability anyway. And it gave lots of countries, including Australia, an excuse to basically not pursue the sustainable agenda. But something profound happened, and I think a piece of it was COVID, but it wasn't just COVID. And that is the financial community realized that there's a whole generation, your generation, the young generation out there, that are entering the investment environment and are putting a lot of pressure on ESG, environment, social and governance goals, as part of the uh, measurement that one should do of responsible enterprises. And the pressure on CEOs and boards 
to actually respond to those sort of investors started to increase, led by companies like BlackRock and Fidelity and State Street and Vanguard. These investors kept saying, I want to see your ESG metrics. I want to see that you're not leaving a negative footprint on the planet. I want to see recycling. I want to see your carbon management goals. And that plus the topic of equality brought on by the George Floyd tragedy in the US and social injustice and racism uh, really brought to the attention the earlier question you asked about purpose. And, and, you know, so what is my purpose? My purpose is to protect the planet. My purpose is to protect its citizens. My purpose is actually to be held accountable for that. And then climate change became a very big piece of that, but not the only piece of it. And so when the pandemic came along, I think the health crisis that said, well, just a second, you know, we we need to have more than just crisis management plans. We actually need to have solutions, okay? We need to actually find ways to stop viruses getting out of control. And that means that I've got to have mechanisms to do that from government and business. So in a way, the, the, the confluence of several factors, the financial owner putting pressure, the CEOs, boards, and governments having to respond, the pandemic, all started to come together. And today, I think we're emerging out of COVID, where actually it is the go-to play. ESG is now not only an accountability topic, but it's also actually a, a business topic. In other words, there are climate coalitions appearing everywhere now. Uh, There's recycling and carbon management and emissions. The recent G20 came out with mandates on that. So I think maybe, again, like the digital point, made our thinking more acute on this topic, but it certainly had an effect to accelerate it. So my next question is, what advice would you give to leaders who need to make difficult decisions which may conflict with their personal values? Well, so I think the question almost inverts as I answered the first question. I think we've entered an era, and young people should take note, that purpose-driven decisions, making the right decisions based on values, is actually the only path out of this. So it's not popular, and sometimes it could be very messy, but actually doing what's right Okay, on all the topics of the 21st century, such as inclusion, gender equality, racism, social injustice, how to actually give access to education and healthcare for everyone on the planet, how to make sure that we eradicate poverty and corruption. We have a lot of maladies in the, in the global ecosystem and humanity can't no longer continue capitalism that actually allocates capital unfairly and unjustly to those that have it versus those who don't. So values-driven, purpose-driven business decisions and government decisions is the only way forward. I'm happy to say that I'm seeing more of that. There is more role models that we can use and talk about. We've certainly exposed the University of Queensland, the Leadership Academy. We've exposed you know, yourselves and others to that type of leader. Uh, they are out there. There are. They're still in the minority. But I think it's the way forward. And I think anyone who uses the excuse that it doesn't make money or it won't get me elected or it's not popular is living history in the wrong way. If we're not careful, if we don't really put our weight behind purpose-driven decision-making, we will lead to anarchy and riots, unrest, and possibly, you know, even to wars that we saw in the 30s before World War II. 
There's a lot of barriers that stop people who are already in leadership positions, such as um, being able to make money for their company or their position in elected office. So how do you overcome these barriers when you need to make that decision? So if you're in elected office and you need to make a value-driven decision, is it worthwhile making that decision that could mean that's your last opportunity to affect change if you're then voted out next? Yeah, so the podium of elected office or the podium of a CEO is only as good to your point of you having the voice at the podium, right? So if you're not at the podium, you don't have the voice, it used to be the paradigm to think about that question. I don't think it's long anymore the question, problem you have to face. I think social media is allowing us to create new podiums. I think we're seeing great examples of people creating blogs and political newsletters and new startups uh, like GitHub and older ones like Politico and, you know, even the Reddits. I mean, there, there is a lot of ways to create new podiums. Uh, that is the power of the new technology. So I don't think you need to have incumbency just in an elected office or just as a CEO to have the podium anymore. So that's part of the way to answer the question, you know, don't be afraid of losing your podium. Uh, you can create a new podium. And I'm an example of that. I mean, I'm, I'm creating a podium at the University of Queensland Leadership Academy. I'm an example of that by writing another book, which I'm in the middle of. I'm an example of that by belonging to a bunch of NGOs like the B Team. I'm an example of that by joining government commissions where I have a voice there. And so, you know what? Even if I'm not a member of any of those, I still will have a voice. I will go out there and make my opinion known. Now, I know I've got the credibility of my prior uh, assignment. I come with uh, credentials, but I've seen lots of young people create new credentials from nothing by actually going out there and speaking to what's right, not what's popular. And eventually those politicians that are elected because they're afraid of being not elected will weed them out of office. My last question for today was, do you feel that private corporations have a responsibility of incorporating sustainable practices into their business without government pressure? They do, but the golden triangle of business, government, and civil society, if you looked at that triangle and said it has to operate in concert with each other, the pressure point has not come from business. It's come from civil society. Now, civil society is affecting governments and regulation under certain, the EU governments I used earlier in the earlier question. We're now going to see that out of the US with the Biden administration. I think the pressure now on businesses to take a proactive leadership stand. As I mentioned, there was a minority of companies who were doing that already, um, you know, like Paul Pullman at Unilever, RJ Banger at MasterCard, David Taylor at Procter & Gamble. I mean, I can go on and mention another dozen, Mark Benioff at Salesforce. They were all doing this already, but they were the minority. And now I think the pressure on business and CEOs to, and I mentioned the financial pressure as well of their owners, will have just accelerate. So I think governments, certainly the US government, uh, the new one, and NGOs and civil society and millennials and, you know, if you like, academia, will put enormous pressure on corporations to step up and really earn the right to operate on the planet. I mean, because they get a license to operate from society. Corporations don't exist in, in isolation. They have a license. That license isn't just to financially reward their owners. Okay? Their license is to have zero impact, negative impact on the planet and on the people around it, to be a community citizen first. 
And I think that mandate is accelerating and the pressure points will continue to accelerate. The great companies will step up and lead it. Thank you very much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Not at all, Jabba. It's really nice to see you and thank you for your thoughtful questions and I'm glad we could make this work.